I'm Jonathan Chanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at FDD. Cliff May is traveling this week, but the show must go on. There's a dangerous, even reckless, new Iran nuclear accord that appears to be nearing the finish line in Vienna. Meanwhile, the Biden White House is struggling to wield the right set of policy tools to bring Vladimir Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine to an end. The White House wants to put both of these challenges in the rear view so that it can pivot to and focus on a looming great power competition with China. But is America exhibiting the attributes of a great power? Shouldn't a superpower be able to deftly address multiple threats simultaneously? Today, we're joined by FTD senior fellow and former CIA operative, Ruel Markarek, as well as Ray Takei, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. They'll discuss two recent articles they co-authored, one for a national review titled Saving the Ayatollahs, Biden's Unwise Iran Policy, the other for the Wall Street Journal titled The Folly of the Pivot to Asia. We'll wrestle with these topics and more here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Gentlemen, hello. Welcome back to both of you, and thanks for being with us today. Let me just start by asking this. You two co-author pieces all the time. How did this start? What is your process? And be honest, Ray, do you write all the first drafts? Not not always. We usually, Ruel and I tend to talk about RAN and other issues a great deal. And sometimes an idea comes out of those conversations and we decide to run with it. Are those conversations, I mean, are they over bourbon or scotch? They're almost entirely on the phone these days. Okay. On a good day, there on a good day, there are already. Okay, but but that doesn't preclude drinking. No, 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 at all. And I think sometimes an idea comes out of that. Usually, one person works on the first draft, and then the other person does it. It's an extremely uncomplicated process of writing. Ruel likes to be more stylish. I have always thought that for Ruel, as I understand it. The essay is a form of art. The essay is a product in of itself. It's not there to transmit information per se. It is there to have a certain literary quality. So I would describe Ruel as an essayist, probably the last of the Mohicans in that respect. He has a respect for the written language. Uh, one of the things that he does that has annoyed me in almost every piece he has to mention Rafsanjani. I don't know why he doesn't seem to understand that the man is dead. Uh, <laughs> keeps mentioning him as if he continues to be the central figure in the Iranian politics. We wrote a sort of an obituary of Rafsanjani at the time of his death in the, in the Washington Post. I thought that was the last time I see him, 
But at every piece, he has to mention Raf Sanjani. I, I do really like him. So, Bruel, I mean, Ray has accused you of being an essayist who's obsessed with Raf Sanjani. How would, how would you describe Ray? Well, Ray is that uh, very rare creature in uh, Washington, D.C., and I mean very rare, in that, you know, he looks at the primary material and he uh, can change his mind. I mean, I've uh, Ray and I have debated each other for, for a long time. We've been on different sides. We've been on the same sides. Uh, we've gone in to see the Secretary of State, completely disagreed with each other. But I, I will always give uh, you know Ray credit. He did something which I, I don't think I've ever encountered before in anyone who's ever served in Washington is that when he actually was in government, he uh, he went into the archives and he just started researching. He started looking at things. Uh, and that is unheralded in, in Washington, D.C., where almost everyone is afflicted with ADHD. Or they think they know everything already. Or they think they know everything already and they don't want to reflect that much. Ray is at heart a, a, a serious historian. He's reflective. And that is, that is extremely un, unusual. And I certainly admire it. And I enjoy the friendship. I would say one more thing about Ruel. The reason why so much Washington writing is bad, everybody writes on behalf of an orthodoxy or on behalf of a political party. And writing ultimately is freedom. If you're writing with the commissar looking over your head, I think that tends to be very inhibitive. Ruel just freely will criticize Republicans neoconservatives, whomever he feels merits that criticism at the time. Washington writing tends to be predictable because people write on behalf of an orthodoxy or a political party. So they tend to subsume themselves in that mental framework. I suspect by being so critical of so many people on the Republican Party over the years, Ruel has lost some friends or has certainly annoyed some people. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd say this, you know, that, and I think the Republican Party has changed. I mean, uh, I, went in to, I went in to see uh, President Bush uh, before the surge, and great part because I'd excoriated his administration somehow. And so there was a desire and a curiosity to to hear, you know, in greater detail, uh, that critique. Uh, well, Bush was famous for that, wasn't he? He was good. He displayed a lot of curiosity and a willingness to listen to folks who, who disagreed with him. You know, that is a, a rare, rare commodity. I am old enough to remember where you, you could have uh, differing opinions amongst friends and you could have large divergences and in, in analysis without it becoming uh, vitriolic. And uh, regrettably, uh, those, days are, uh, those days appear to be gone. Well, hopefully they'll come back. I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it too, but let's hold out a little hope. Let me turn to your recent work. You've got two recent pieces that I wanted to touch on today. You wrote a recent piece in National Review. I found it to be refreshing. This jumped out at me, uh, this one line. Uh, and I'll quote, by yielding little to and getting much from the Biden administration and the ongoing negotiations in Vienna, the clerical regime is trying again to have both guns and butter, end quote. Ray, let's perhaps start with you in terms of what's been reported until now. What kind of an Iran nuclear deal is on the horizon? Well, I should say uh, with arms control agreements, the devil is always in the detail. I and mean, we just don't know what's in this agreement. It's supposed to be 20 pages with three annexes. 
it is supposed to be returned to the JCPOA in some form. What portion of the JCPOA they will not return to the Iranians because of the technological advances that they have made. So there's a lot we don't know. But even if you suspect that it will go back to the JCPOA, JCPOA was a profoundly flawed argument at the time of its enactment. Uh, unlike wine, it doesn't improve with age. It has serious of sunset clauses and massive sanctions relief that are likely to be triggered as a result of that. Arms control and a coercive sanctions policy really cannot coexist. In a sense, an arms control agreement in the case of Iran essentially means massive sanctions relief. Because one of the things that the administration and many others in Europe and elsewhere say is we still have can maintain the leverage of sanctions even upon enacting an arms control agreement. I don't believe that upon enactment of this arms control agreement, we still possess this sanction leverage. Because if you look at what is an Annex 2 of the JCPOA, one of the lines that I like about the JCPOA's Annex, it says, as part of this Iran-Syria human rights bill is going to be waived. That is not a sanction, nuclear sanction. <laughs> it's called Iran-Syria human rights bill. <laughs> so to me, essentially, this is not just a permissive arms control agreement with the technologies that it provides Iran, with all the issues that it doesn't deal with, but it also deprives of the West of its primary means of coercion over Iran, uh, namely application of economic penalties. So it, it is both a disaster in terms of what it allows in the arms control aspect, but it's a supplementary disaster in terms of the fact that it deprives the United States of an ability to discipline the Iranian government to the extent that you believe economic sanctions can do that. Yeah. And, and you know, I think our colleague Said Ghassaminejad recently wrote that it's going to be about $130 billion or perhaps more in, in sanctions relief. And then in return, there will be basically very little in terms of long-term restrictions, virtually zero guarantees that the regime will quit its nuclear quest. So I think, you know, I think you're probably right in pointing out all of those flaws, but Ruel, let me just turn to you and ask you. So one of the things that you guys wrote in your national review piece was that the Biden administration is, is essentially saying that the goal is to convey that Iran is somehow, quote, no longer one of America's most enduring adversaries, but rather a global stakeholder. Is that is that the end game here? Is that why we're not seeing a tougher negotiating team? Is that why they seem to have caved? I don't. I mean, I think the primary reason we're, we're seeing what we've seen, it's difficult to, to judge it. Uh, but I mean, I think where we're at is just sort of pay-as-you-go nuclear therapy. The JCPOA wasn't primarily an arms control agreement. It was a philosophical proposition. And that is you buy, you pay money, and maybe you get a decade's surcease to your nuclear anxiety. And within that decade, things would get better that uh, you would have more trade, more commerce, et cetera, et cetera. Iran would moderate and you'd be in a better position than you would be without it. I don't think the Biden administration really holds to this notion that the Obama crowd had, at least when they started throughout 2012, when President Obama was sending letters to the Supreme Leader, that the regime's going to moderate. It may still you know, fleetingly have that hope, 
But I think right now they're just trying to get out of it a very difficult uh, situation. It's de facto nuclear weapons capability where they're just, you know, increasing the stockpile of highly enriched uranium, that they're just trying to, you know, buy the way out of that and give themselves a bit of breathing space. I don't think they really think that they can get moderation out of this, though I wouldn't be surprised if they try to sell it that way. Uh, that here it is, the regime, they're actually signing an agreement. Maybe cross your fingers, you know, this will get better. The Europeans will probably echo that to some extent. Not that, not even, I'm not sure the Europeans really care that much now. I think the Europeans cared about the EU3 diplomacy. They cared about the JCPOA. Uh, but I think when Trump withdrew, I think more or less the Europeans washed their hands of it. I also think before uh, JCPOA, I think there was a real fear in Europe that the Israelis might do something. Uh, they had that fear early on. That's why the Europeans started the nuclear negotiations with Iran before the Americans entered the scene, because they had a real fear of George W. Bush. So the incentives for the Europeans, I think, have really boiled down to, you know, let's just trade. I don't think they're compelled by nonproliferation anymore. So l- let me unpack that for a minute. I mean, first, I think there, there's this issue that you touch on, this idea that you can somehow moderate a regime over time. We've seen it with China, of course. Now it's a failed experiment. We saw it with uh, Russia, I guess you could say, after the Cold War, an attempt to kind of reshape the country after regime change, if you will. So that looks like a failed experiment now. So let me just ask and, and feel free, either of you or both of you, but I mean, what's the goal here? I understand the P5 plus one, maybe they've just sort of, they look like they're adrift. But I mean, if you're going to start throwing money at the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism, you're going to give them very clear path to nuclear weapons within, what, five, seven years maximum. What are you trying to do at this point? Or is it just simply, let's forestall it until someone else comes in? I would add, couple of things. I think the administration is going to package this prospective deal differently. You cannot really argue that the regime of a mass murderer, Raisi and Khamenei, are evolving without suggesting that they'll be displaced from power. So the notion that the Islamic Republic will evolve into a more moderate entity is not something they're going to be pressing. Nor are they going to engage in the canard of 2015 when they said this is the greatest agreement ever. This is the most important pathway to arms control. This is a gold standard. I think their approach is more limited and in a way more effective. They're going to say this is the best we can get under the current circumstances. We are dealing with multiplicity of global and domestic crisis. And if you guys can do better, offer us your alternative. That's not an unreasonable argument, by the way. Uh, Last time in 2015, they argued that they had secured the gold standard of arms control. And we had an arms control debate in 2015, and the administration lost that debate. They're not really contesting that. When they set themselves that their objective is not returning to the deal, but making it longer and stronger, 
that means they themselves acknowledged that it was short and weak. Now they're no longer talking about longer and stronger. They're saying this is the best we can do under the international system and a domestic system where there are multiplicity of crises. And here you go. And we don't think anybody really will care about this. I'm not entirely persuaded that they're wrong in their presentation. But why, why would nobody care? I mean, here you have a regime that continues to destabilize the Middle East. You've got them using proxies to attack oil producers, which right now happen to be pretty pivotal in the global economy. You've got a situation where war could break out on Israel's border at any given moment, prompting the Israelis to go on the counteroffensive. You've got a lot of risk here that looking at everything else from COVID to Ukraine to everything else that's going on in the world, do you really need another major crisis in the Middle East? Wouldn't you want to put this to bed? To put it to bed, you'd have to have a crisis. So, I mean, uh, and I think that's where the Democrats are going to come at this. They're going to give you the the hope, the you might say illusion, that there are a way at least punts it down the road. And let's be frank, most American administrations, it's a bipartisan reflex to accept punting. That's just the way the United States political system works. So if you can punt a problem down the road. Although, although to be fair, this is not being punted. This agreement does not delay Iran's nuclear trajectory. It solidifies it, right? I mean, I would argue it's, all, it's already de facto a nuclear weapon state. The only unknown element is, have they finished a nuclear trigger or have they not? Everything else in the modeling, I think they've, they've, they've accomplished. So the issue, they're going to argue that if you can punt the completion of that process, if you can punt down the road the stockpiling of highly enriched uranium, which I think is really the only thing they really care about, uh, they're going to say that's fine. And then they're going to challenge the Republicans and say, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to do sanctions and collapse the regime in 24 months? That's not going to happen. So they're going to try to force the Republicans to come up and say, honestly, there is the military option and the Republicans don't want to do it. So and the Republicans don't want to accept the fact that maybe you have to deal with a nuclear state and you have to go into a containment strategy. The Republicans don't really want to do that either. So. The Democratic position, as flawed and as weak as it is, is not without a certain resonance, uh, I think, rhetorically. And certainly at a moment where we see neo-isolationism surging in America, in our political foreign policy discourse, I would imagine that uh, that maybe it does resonate. You actually mentioned something, Ruel, that did kind of catch my attention, that if the Israelis perhaps threatened action, that that might actually get a better deal. Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you can get a better deal. I think it's always advisable for the Israelis to threaten military action. But that's true for a variety of reasons. But I, I don't think the threat of Israeli military action is going to eliminate the advance, the incredible advance the Iranians have been able to do in you know, producing advanced centrifuges. Don't you think that a threat of Israeli action might force the hand of this administration to try to get, if not a stronger deal, a longer deal? to put more restrictions in place. No, I, I think if the administration thought the Israeli threat were real, they'd twist Israel's arm, not Iran's. I think that's probably true. But you don't think that if the Israelis really doubled down on this and said, look, we see an attack being imminent as a result of this, you don't think that that would get the West to scramble a bit more and to try to line up a better deal? No, I don't, actually. I, I, I think that I think the 
I think you have to give up the illusion that there is a good deal down some path. I, I just don't think there is. Ray, do you agree? Well, I think what we're dealing with is a, is a textual reality. Everybody's working on... I really like it when you use phrases like that, by the way. That was nice. But everybody's dealing with a text. The foundational text is the JCPOA. And everybody sort of deals with that text. And if the foundational text is deficient and flawed, it's hard to build on that. I think Ruel is correct in a sense, so long as the JCPOA conditions the argument, then it'd be very difficult to get a better deal. I mean, to be fair, that's what an administration said they would do. They would get back to the JCPOA and they would try to get a better deal. Then after a year of realizing that they're not even going to get back perhaps to the original JCPO, or they have given up on that. So I don't know if at this point with this administration and currently we can negotiate a better deal. And I'm not entirely sure what the Israeli perspective is. I think the Israelis are very much against the JCPOA, as was Bibi Netanyahu, but they're unwilling to disturb the bilateral relationship. That may change, by the way. I mean, that may change. That may change. We've got recent news that one member of Knesset has actually peeled away from the coalition, which could end up toppling Naftali Bennett's government and could prompt a change in policy. I'm not sure we can bank on that, but... But so long, at the current point, it is my estimation, I yield to others, that Israelis have decided, to use Lyndon Johnson's crass phrase, to stay within the tent, as opposed to stay outside the tent. Uh, uh, so so in that sense, they have limited Are you afraid critique. to say urinate on foreign yes, policy? Yes, I was. I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very polite person in terms of use of language in public. In public! <laughs> so that's the Israeli decision that has been made. And one of the things I will say, John, is uh, I, I mentioned the administration doesn't care, and you say they should care. I don't think the administration cares about their critics. They don't care what Ruel and I say, what the Republicans or caucus says. They think these people are irredeemable. They're going to be against every agreement. So we're not going to bother placating them or or addressing their sensitivities or their concerns. Yeah, and that's actually different from, say, uh, 2012 to 2015, where they spent some time at least trying to gather some type of Republican support or less Republican criticism. I think they they used to listen with the idea that they'd be able to counter with smart arguments. That that was our experience back in the 2013 to 2015 era. They'd actually welcome us in, they'd hear our criticisms, and then they'd think about how to respond in a convincing way. I, I don't know if any of us were convinced, but I think that was ultimately the goal. Now I think you're right. They're not even bothering to do that. Well, I mean, you can definitely say that Trump's withdrawal has accelerated history. So uh, some of the arguments that they made in the past just really aren't pertinent anymore. I think that's true. That's true. They had this notion that we can't hold on with sanctions forever. And I mean, I, that was the primary one, that there was no way to continue the sanctions as we knew them. And then Trump went ahead and did it unilaterally, and they were quite effective. Also, I don't know if they believed, I don't want to get into history of this, if they believe that all the Republican presidential candidate in 2016 that were saying we're going to get out of the deal. I'm not sure if they believe that. And frankly, I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> they thought whatever deal is enacted, 
to Republicans will yell and scream. And even if there's a Republican presidency, that deal will be sustained because of continuity argument. That seemed to me not an unreasonable argument if other Republican, other than Trump, came to power. And it is important to maintain that for the first, what is it, year and a half of his administration, Donald Trump maintained adherence to the agreement. I mean, against his own wishes. I mean, he was unbelievably frustrated every time he had to issue a waiver. And then eventually, I think his impulses got the best of him. Let me ask you both one simple question, and then I want to move to your Wall Street Journal piece. We've heard a lot about how things are just going in a certain direction. What is the best that we can expect from future administrations? Let's assume that this one, it's not going to make any changes. It's going down this road. What should the next administration or the one after do to contain Iran, to roll back Iran? What can be done after another Iran deal is inked? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's a good question. I suppose that you're, you have to say, is the next administration Democratic or the next administration Republican? Let's just say it doesn't matter. Let's just say for the sake of argument that we've got a sane group of adults coming in to the next administration that actually want to roll back Iran's nuclear program, that they see it as the danger that we see it. What does one do? Well, I mean, that's that's assuming the Iranians haven't gone nuclear by January of 2025. Okay. I mean, I don't I don't think you get to roll back the nuclear program. There are only two ways. One way is you attempt to militarily take it out. Uh, and it's getting very late in the game to do that. Much better to use the military option years ago, which is why I started writing about it years ago. Uh, because the longer you put it down, uh, punt, punt it down the road, the more complicated, the more advanced uh, their program becomes, the more uh, people they have who are properly trained. It becomes very hard to kill it off the more you postpone it. That's not to say that you might want not want to try the military option. I'm certainly willing to make lots of arguments for it, but that's one, and that's the least likely one. The other one is you play the long game, and that is you accept the fact that the Islamic Republic is a nuclear state, and you go into a containment regime change strategy. Now, that's also hard. You can't do that if the United States is trying to retrench in the Middle East. It just doesn't work. There are no uh, proxies who can effectively handle this. Now, we are fortunate. And that in the Middle East, unlike, say, in Europe or Asia, where the United States is absolutely indispensable and uh, must play the lion's share of the work, in the Middle East, you do have some check on the Islamic Republic, at least in the northern Middle East, by Israel. Israel is a nuclear power. It's always going to have more and better nukes, at least in our lifetime, than the Islamic Republic is going to have. So there is some check. Uh, from uh, Israel, the northern Middle East, and the southern Middle East, probably not. You know, there are a variety of things you can do. The Republican administration could do. I'm doubtful a Democratic administration would do them. Uh, but you are going to have to be a little bit more aggressive. Certainly in the southern Middle East, you're going to have to put pressure on them. If they go nuclear, uh, it wouldn't be at all surprising to see hubris get the better of that they'll think that by being a nuclear power, they can get away with more. And so you would have to let them know, no, that's not true. Uh, we are still going to check you regardless of whether you have the bomb or not. Um, and that, uh, the leading edge of that would be the U.S. Navy. 
so you've got to maintain the American presence in the Persian Gulf. You have to ensure that the Iranians know the Gulf is only Persian in name, uh, in that we control it. And we're not going to let happen what, you know, Donald Trump let happen. And that is we're not going to allow crews at missile strikes, drone strikes on any oil facilities along the littoral. That the U.S. Navy is going to ensure that there is free passage and no one gets to attack uh, anyone along the Persian Gulf. And if they attempt to do so, we will respond militarily. That's a pretty easy call for the United States. We have the wherewithal, the naval power to do that. It's not risking much. It's not that costly. So we can at least do that. There are other things we could try, but I think you have to, you have to assert uh, that the United States isn't withdrawing. Uh, the Saudis, the uh, Emiratis, they're not able to handle this on their own, that it's primarily an American task in the southern Middle East. We're responsible for maintaining the flow of oil. We can't live with this delusion that because the United States could be energy independent, that it allows us to run away from the Persian Gulf. I'd argue, by the way, that in addition, the idea of arming up the Israelis with whatever they need in order to continue to prosecute what they call their war between wars against the Islamic Republic, striking drone fields, hitting them in cyberspace, hammering Hezbollah, targeting assets in Syria. All of these things are probably also very helpful in terms of messaging to the Iranians and containing them, regardless of whether they go nuclear. I mean, I don't think you can underestimate the positive impact. Uh, that the Israelis' actions in Syria have had on, on Iran. I mean, they fundamentally changed the way the Revolutionary Guard Corps was deploying its forces and its material in that country. And what's important to note is the Iranians effectively haven't responded to those Israeli actions, even though the Israelis have been killing members of the Revolutionary Guard, destroying a lot of equipment. Uh, it tells you decisively that the Iranians are scared to escalate. That has been a big problem. Uh, with the United States, because it's been the Americans who've been scared to escalate. So the Iranians have been allowed to get away with a lot, even though their capacity is dwarfed by ours. Right. If you were advising the next administration or the one after? Or the one after that. I would say on the nuclear issue, I think Ruel is correct that at this late stage, the only type of restraint we can obtained from the Iranians is a risk of military altercation. And on the nuclear issue, you might wish to declare some red lines that you will not accept in terms of Iran's nuclear trajectory. And if those red lines are transgressed, not whatever they may be, the, any administration has to decide it. They have to be realistic, advanced centrifuges coming online and so forth. That if those red lines are transgressed, then use of force will be employed. Essentially, what you would be trying to do is purchase nuclear restraints without corresponding sanctions relief. If you're going to draw those red lines and if they are transgressed, you've got to act. We shouldn't have a second meeting about that. That's right. That's right. In other words, we, we, we don't reenact what happened in 2013 with Obama and the Syrian red lines. And the many red lines that we have drawn on the Islamic Republic. Let's not forget that the United States Congress has passed many legislations suggesting that Iran should not have a domestic enrichment capability. To suggest zero enrichment today is viewed as reckless and irresponsible. It was a bipartisan policy of the United States Congress. On the regional stuff, I think Ruel is, is correct. I would actually have a more robust human rights policy. It has always been my contention that 
Iranian regime is unstable. I don't believe Iranian security services are reliable in terms of dealing with domestic dissent. So I do think the Iranian regime has immense domestic vulnerabilities. I'm not sure if the United States can accelerate them, but can certainly accentuate those vulnerabilities. So we do have options, but all these options require, I think, first and foremost, presidential commitment. I think if a prospective president is not personally committed to this course of action, it's not going to percolate up to the bureaucracy. I think it has to be imposed from top down. That's what I would say. It's just in terms of bureaucratic structure. Yeah, I mean, you would have to have a president who would be explicitly clear with the Joint Chiefs, uh, who will inevitably gravitate towards a peaceful direction and will want waffle. The, the real red line is that you can't produce advanced centrifuges. So if you, if you do that, then you have to be ready to go to war tomorrow. And so the inclination on the part of the, in the American administration is to give themselves wiggle room to, and to move it. That's historically what we've done with Iranian terrorism that's been aimed at the United States. But, you know, you guys are both saying that this isn't necessarily a foregone conclusion, that if you have tough diplomacy, potentially pressure, but really back it up with the credible threat of military force, then this thing is not a done deal. You can continue to prevent the regime from ultimately going nuclear. That, that's not what this administration is going to do, but that no, I, I don't I, I would actually I don't know if Ray agrees with me. I, I don't. I don't think unless we're prepared to go to war, uh, I don't think there's any chance we can stop it from going nuclear. I think that decision is in Khamenei's hands. That credible threat, though, that that is something that the regime will notice and will fear. Everything now that's important can be done clandestinely. So. And I think that's why it's plausible the Israeli guesstimate from the archives that they haven't completed uh, the nuclear trigger might be correct. I'm not sure I buy it because I don't think their intelligence is newer than, say, 2004. But if it is correct, it makes sense. The Iranians would be the most hesitant with developing a nuclear trigger because that is the one thing you can't camouflage. No way you can bury that in the civilian program. So you have to be absolutely certain that the development of that has been airtight. Needless to say, the Iranians have had more than a few leaks uh, in their program. So that would be a concern of theirs that they, they, they don't have the proper counterintelligence to ensure their work would remain covert. But barring that issue, uh, I don't think there's anything technically that is standing in the way. I think you have to abandon the notion of arms control. There is no peaceful route out of this. There is a containment strategy you can adopt or you can fight about it. But the notion that we can peacefully somehow get out of this, I just don't think is credible. Not exactly giving me a whole lot of faith about where we're going, but let me pivot now to Asia, if I may. You both wrote a piece recently in the Wall Street Journal. Your argument was that you have these Asia firsters, which I think is a great phrase, and that they're making the argument that we've got to make this pivot to great power competition with China. How does one do this credibly as we fail on Iran? I think that's question number one. And then two, I mean, why can't we walk and chew gum? We forsake the other key American interests elsewhere around the world in order to focus on one region and one region only. Right. Uh, I'll start. 
you say, how can we pivot to Asia if we fail in Iran? Those who want to pivot with Asia will say failure in Iran doesn't matter. And that because our security concerns and economic concerns are in Asia. But I think Asia firsters, there are wide categories of them. It is my opinion, just my opinion, that the Biden administration is a very cynical Asia firster. They essentially use pivot to Asia as an excuse for not doing anything anywhere else, including Asia. (laughs) And essentially, I think we said in the piece, the Biden people justify everything by saying that this is necessary for pivot to Asia. We have to have an infrastructure bill because we have to compete with China. We have to have broadband because we have to compete with China. So for them, competition with China was an excuse to justify domestic priorities. You can agree or disagree with those domestic priorities. And in some cases, they're quite sensible. And also for neglect of other regions. If you think about American foreign policy historically, there has always, I think we said in a piece, some regions that command more of the attention than others. In the early phase of the Cold War, it was Europe because everybody was concerned about given this economic dislocation, the strength of communist parties, and the possibility of Soviet invasion. In the 1960s, Asia became more of a concern. As we said in the piece, every time you have half a million troops in the region, that sucks all the oxygen out of the room. But no president that focused on one region more so than others said, okay, now we're going to abandon the other regions, and we're going to focus on Southeast Asia and Vietnam. We're going to focus on opening to China. We're going to focus on containing the Soviet Union. The problem with the conversation about pivot to Asia by the more irresponsible proponents of that argument argues for strategic neglect everywhere else. And things happen in life. I mean, I I don't think people in the Biden administration thought, anticipated that their foreign policy would start out with a debacle in Afghanistan and a crisis in Ukraine. Uh, If you are going to be a superpower, you cannot afford to suggest that we are focused on one region and the others don't matter. Finally, I will say one more thing. There are two very reckless phrases that have infiltrated our foreign policy discourse. Number one is pivot to Asia. The second is forever wars. These two particular phrases have sharpened the appetite of our adversaries. We don't know, and perhaps historians may never know, why it is that President Putin decided to undertake his invasion at this point. But it cannot be missed upon him that we kept saying that we are not concerned about other theaters of operation, as they would say. We are focused on China and everything else that had to have conditioned his perspective in some way. So I think Pivot to Asia has invited uh, other forms of aggression and would continue to do so. This is not to suggest, and I don't think Royal and I suggested that, that Asia is unimportant, that China is not the most significant challenge that the United States faces, but it is not the only one, and we need to be able to deal with multiplicity of regions at the same time. Yeah, that was, that was well put. I mean, for a, a lot of folks uh, that make the Asia first argument, I think it's it's a socially acceptable way of really getting in more of an isolationist argument, which if you said it explicitly, uh, would be less acceptable. So it's, it, to some extent, it's camouflage. I'm not going to suggest that all those people who make it aren't in some sense sincere. Uh, they, they probably are, but I think they are all united by their desire for the United States to do less. 
I mean, I think there was after uh, the Cold War was over that there was this notion that the United States could, you know, return to being a normal state and that it didn't have to undertake the, these global responsibilities and, and mission. I mean, Jim Kirkpatrick made an argument for that. Uh, I, you know, I, I think with benefit of hindsight, that's, I, I, I would say that's clearly mistaken. And the United States, uh, you know, needs to have the funds necessary to maintain the doctrine of, of two wars, that you could fight two simultaneous wars, uh, one in Europe, one in Asia, and have the resources to do that. That costs money. I think on both the Republican and Democratic sides, there's been this notion that the defense budget can't be more than 3% of GNP. It needs to be a lot more than that. Obviously, there's resistance to it because the United States can't do what it did in the 1950s and have both guns and butter. Uh, so you have to make difficult choices. And so far, it's unclear that the United States is willing politically to make the choice for greater defense spending and less domestic spending. The persistent drumbeat of pivot to Asia essentially causes less attention to Asia because it provokes crisis elsewhere. <laughs> I mean, I don't think the Biden administration wanted to deal with the war in Europe. To what extent did pivot to Asia condition Vladimir Putin toward this war? I mean, it might have been one of many factors and not the primary factor, but it probably was there somewhere. Now, for the remainder of their term, their foreign policy is going to be Ukraine and Russia. For those who believe that the United States should pivot to Asia and pay more attention to Asia, and the challenge of China, they should want a superpower that has assumptions of responsibility elsewhere, because otherwise all the other bad guys are saying, this is my time to shine. Yeah. And if the pivot to Asia were serious, you would see the US Navy grow enormously. Uh, so if you see people saying, well, let's pivot to Asia, but you don't see the US Navy growing, then you know something's amiss. You're not credible unless you back it up with defense spending. And we're just so far unwilling to do that. Okay, yet another bleak picture. I want to try to end things on a little bit of, of a positive note so we can make the argument that the American-led world order is perhaps softening. The rules-based system is, well, unraveling. These are the negative indicators. What can the United States do as it looks to recalibrate? What would you recommend? We've got both of you guys here. You've been watching Iran for many years, but you're steeped in all these other issues. What should be done rather than just simply say, well, build up the military or don't be isolationist? I mean, what are some things credibly right now that the next administration should be thinking about, assuming this administration is not going to change its mind on Iran, it's not really going to pivot to Asia and we're going to be mired in Ukraine for the next couple of years, I think, as you both would agree. So what happens after this? How do you start to set things right? We've had a chaotic couple of presidential terms. Let's just say for the sake of argument, we've got somebody who comes in who wants to take foreign policy more seriously and apply some rigor to restoring the order that we once enjoyed. In every region, I would say we pick sides. The stuff that Ruel said about defense is programmatic and sensible. I would also suggest that we should have a greater degree of emphasis about the essential human rights policy that we should have. 
namely that we are objecting to autocratic regimes, not just because of the threat they pose abroad, but the threat they pose within their system. And finally, I would actually suggest that the democratic order, as beset it is by various problems, is far more resilient and capable and capable of regeneration than our autocratic adversaries. I wouldn't want to be in command of the Chinese country today with all the problems that they're having. Vladimir Putin's hold on power may be tenuous, maybe not, but he's certainly not in good shape. Ali Khamenei is one of the more perceptive of the despotic rulers. I think Khamenei understands that the Iranian people hate his regime. But I do think we have to have the offensive ideologically, politically, economically, rebuild our alliances. The West and the free world and so on have greater advantages in this particular context for power than our adversaries do. And it should not just be a great power competition. It should be a competition of ideas. It is my opinion the Cold War ended because it was a battle of ideas. And the West won the battle of ideas. I don't think we have emphasized that near enough. I, I would agree with that completely. I think the notion and the use of the terms great power competition morally denudes what's happening. It diminishes the continuing paramount importance of ideas in foreign affairs. Uh, and I think the United States should be you know, full-throated in its defense of human rights and democracy abroad. I do think you have to keep things simple. And that is, you can't do anything if you don't have the means. So I, I hate to harp on the issue of defense spending, but uh, you can't do more with less. Just throw that out the window. So you have to, you have, to have um, more hardware. There's no question about it. We can't run away from hard power. It is the, uh, it's like the Greeks said about courage. It is what everything else is based on. So uh, you've got to have more. I mean, I do think the United States and Europe together are incredibly resilient. Our capacity to generate wealth is extraordinary. So we should use those advantages. And it's not that hard to do it. I mean, you got to have a bit of the bully pulpit. You have to have a bit of the hard power. But you have to be willing to risk. And I think that's where we are certainly weakest now, is that we have to have leadership that says we are willing to risk certain things, war being one of them, to ensure that certain ideals and objectives are met. I do think that the importance of the Ukraine war is great, and that I, I do think the uh, emphasis that you're seeing in the West on the discussion of democracy, liberty, however flawed Ukraine was, it was going in the right direction. And the brutality of uh, Putin's aggression I think it has sort of reanimated, certainly, an awareness that NATO is important, that Europe is important. And I think in the long run, that's very, very, very important for the United States elsewhere, because the United States historically doesn't like to operate all by itself. It likes to be a part of a grander cause. So uh, I think in that sense, Putin has done us a favor. I think that is probably correct. Let's hope that the battle of ideas is reanimated by the crisis in Ukraine at minimum. Gentlemen, thank you for walking us through these issues today. I, for one, learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did as well. These are tough times, but we're lucky to have two of the sharpest national security minds with us to help us make sense of it all. Thanks again to both of you for taking the time to join us today. And of course, many thanks to our listeners for joining us today, too, here on Foreign Policy.
Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.